All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vinata Swami Nitinamana. Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Pacharani Nivasesa Sundarvati Paskatabha Sadhana. Mandayam Sri Guru Sri Utah Padakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavam Chak Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sapadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Jaitanya Deva Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Ravita Sri Vishakam Vitashta Anjakapadri Vishaki Vishnavivata Dijanam Pavaneva Vaishnavam Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya February 14, 2017 in Sydney, Australia reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 16 Lord Parshrama destroys the ruling class, verses, says one through nine. Right now I'm doing one through six. It's not one through nine, one through six. Whoever, who writes the verse on the word? Can you just change that nine to a six so they won't be confused for tomorrow? Yeah, thanks. Okay, reading through the chapter summary. When Jamadagni was killed by the sons of Kartavirya Arjuna, as described in this chapter, Parasram ruled the entire world of Sakriya's 21 times. This chapter also describes the descendants of Vishramrita. When Jamadagni's wife, Renika, went to bring water from the Ganges and saw the king of the Gantarvas enjoying the company of Apsaras, she was captivated and she slightly desired to associate with him. Because of this sinful desire, she was punished by her husband. Parashram kills his mother and brothers, but later, by dint of the austerities of Jangadagni, they were revived. The sons of Kartavir Arjuna, however, remembering the death of their father, wanted to take revenge against Lord Parashram, and therefore, when Parashram was absent from the ashrama, they killed Jamadagni, who was meditating on the Supreme Personality of Godhead. When Parashram returned to the ashrama and saw his father killed, he was very sorry. And after asking his brothers to take care of the dead body, he went out with determination to kill all the Ksatriyas on the surface of the world. Taking up his axe, he went to Mahishmatipura, the capital of Kartavirya Arjuna, and killed all of Kartavirya Arjuna's sons, whose blood became a great river. Parashram, however, was not satisfied with killing only the sons of Kartavirya Arjuna. Later, when the Ksatriyas became disturbing, he killed them 21 times, so that there were no Ksatriyas on the surface of the earth. Thereafter, Parasram joined the head of his father to the dead body and performed various sacrifices to please his Supreme Lord. Thus, Jamadagni got life again in his body, and there, later he was promoted to the higher planetary system known as 
Saptarshi Mandala. Parashuram, the son of Jagadagni, still lives in Mahendra Parvat. In the next Manvatari, he will become a preacher of Vedic knowledge. In the dynasty of Gaudi, the most powerful Vishramita took birth. By dint of his austerities and penance, he became a Brahmana. He had 101 sons who were celebrated as the Madhu Chandas. In the sacrificial arena of Harish Chandra, the son of Ajigarta named Sunasepa was meant to be sacrificed, but by the mercy of the Prajapatis, he was released. Thereafter, he became Devavrata in the dynasty of Gaji. The 50 elder sons of Vishramita, however, did not accept Sunasepa as their elder brother. And therefore, Vishramita cursed them to become leches, unfaithful to the Vedic civilization. Vishramita's 51st son, along with his younger brothers, then accepted Sunasepa as their eldest brother, and their father, Vishramita, being satisfied, blessed them. Thus, Devarata was accepted in the dynasty of Koshika, and consequently there are different divisions of that dynasty. So text one is on the board. Shisukuvacha Pitrapashikshitoramas Tateti Kurunandana Samvatsaram Tirtayatram Chariva Shrama Ajravat Avrajat Chariva Shrama Avrajat Please chant Shri Sukha Uvacha Shri Sukha Dev Goswami says Pitra by his father Upashikshita Thus advised, Ramaha, Lord Parasarama, Tataiti, let it be so, Puru Nandana, O son of the Kuru dynasty, Maharaj Parikshit, Sambatsalam, for one complete year, Tirti Yatram, traveling to all the holy places, Charitva, after executing Ashrama to his own residence, Avrajat returned. Translation by Srila Prabhupada. Sukadeva Goswami said, My dear Prichit, son of the Kuru dynasty, when Lord Parashram was given this order by his father, he immediately agreed, saying, Let it be so. For one complete year he traveled to holy places, then he returned to his father's residence. So, we find he's not arguing with his father. He doesn't say, I'm an incarnation of God. Why do I have to, why do I have to travel to holy places? I'm already Krishna conscious. Why do I have to travel to holy places? <laughs> he says, okay, if you say I should travel to holy places to atone for my sins, I'll do it. And he did. Okay, now we're on to text two. Once when Menuka, the wife of Jangadagni, went to the bank of the Ganges to get water, she saw the king of the Gantarvas decorated with a garland of lotuses, and sporting in the Ganges with celestial women, Apsaras. So, this indicates that in former times, the higher uh, celestial beings would sometimes come to earth and be visible to the residents of earth. We still have uh, our Sadaputa Prabhu, God Brother Sadaputa, wrote that book, Alien Identities, about how even today uh, humans have contact with beings from other worlds from other spheres from other platforms although generally the interchange with other entities is of a demoniac nature rather than a higher nature but there's there's always been interchange 
between the different planets. And such is recorded in all the world scriptures. I mean, all the, the Bible, the Quran, everything is recording these interchanges. And of course, the folklore and the fairy tales are all full of such interchanges as well. There's many uh, civilizations, ancient civilizations, which uh, attribute their, the knowledge of their civilization to contact with higher entities from other planets. And there's one civilization in Africa, which by modern standards is uncivilized. And they have various festivals that are in line with a particular uh, star's movement in the sky. But that star is not visible to the naked eye. You have to have very powerful telescopes to see that star. And so when the you know, modern Europeans found out about the civilization, they asked the people, how do you know about the existence of that star? What to speak of its movements? And they said, well, our civilization was founded by beings from that star. And this was their history. So there are so many examples like this in the world of some times where there's an interchange. I said even today, uh, people have uh, accounts of encounters with beings from other platforms of existence. Uh, most of the uh, extraterrestrial encounters are with the negative beings, with demoniac beings. But there's also many encounters of higher benevolent beings. I know that there are Christian organizations that collect angel stories and you can, you can find books of these stories where people have encountered with some higher entities. So this is what happened with Renuka. She went to get water uh, for her husband's sacrifice. People didn't have tap water. You know, they had to go to a river and get water or go to a well and get water. And there she saw the, um, the king of the Gantarvas sporting uh, with celestial women wearing a garland of lotus flowers. So next verse. She'd gone to bring water for the Ganges, but when she saw Chitrarata, the king of the Gandharvas, sporting with the celestial girls, she was somewhat inclined towards him and failed to remember that the time for the fire sacrifice was passing. So we've all had this experience that we're, we go somewhere to do something and we get distracted and we forget what we were supposed to do. Yes, everybody has this experience? So she, she forgot I was supposed to get water for my husband's fire sacrifice, but the reason she forgot was that she became attracted to Chicharata and his girls. It says slightly, she became slightly attracted. Oh, what a handsome man. He was, he was a handsome man. He was a celestial being. But she, became, she got, had some romantic attraction. Text 4, later understanding that the time for offering the sacrifice had passed, Renuka feared a curse from her husband, Therefore, when she returned, she simply put the water pot before him and stood there with folded hands. So she thought, oh boy, now I'm in trouble. Now the sacrifice, time of sacrifice has passed. And she was married to a, a brahmana. By the way, she had been a, uh, a princess. And we have sometimes these inter-varna marriages. But in this case, she actually had the nature of a Brahmani. She didn't have the nature of a Kshatrani. Sometimes you have these inter-caste marriages where the woman still has her, and she's still considered of, her, uh, of a different caste, like with Ramaharshan Sutta, where his mother is a Brahmana and his father is a Kshatriya. And the mother remains a Brahmani even after she marries a, a Kshatriya. And in fact, her child, Ramahashram Sutta, took more of the nature of his mother in, in being a Brahmana. Being a Brahmana. Uh, 
But in this particular case, Renuka married Jamadagni because although she was born in Kshatriya family, she didn't have the nature of Kshatriya. She had the nature of a Brahmana. So she understood that my husband is a Brahmana and he can curse me. You know, it used to be, till a few thousand years ago, that Brahmanas had power to curse somebody and it actually happened. You know, if a Brahmana said to you, you become a frog, then you became a frog. And again, the, the fact that there were people who had this kind of power persists in all of the old stories of the world, isn't it? That there are beings who have this sort of power to just say something and then it, it happens. And I'm sure that this was one of the reasons that the Kshatriyas respected the Brahmanas, because Kshatriyas are into power. But the Brahmanas had uh, higher power. And in fact, Vishramrita is discussed later in this chapter. Vishramrita originally wanted to become a Brahmana because Vishramrita had this higher power, more subtle power than he had. And his desire to become a Brahmana was because he wanted to become more powerful. So she knows, you know, I'm married to a very powerful man and he might use this power against me because I, I really messed up. Now, of course, it's interesting, and we're, we'll talk about this tomorrow, I believe. Yes, tomorrow. That uh, Jamadagni had just preached to Parashuram what? That Parashuram should be what? Forgiving. Right? When Kartavir Arjuna stole the Kamadenu, which was a, a serious offense for Kshatriya to steal a Brahmana's cow especially a magic cow, was, was, was a great offense. And Jamadagni said, you should be forgiving, and not only should you be forgiving, but you've done something wrong, and because you've done something wrong, you should... You should take some atonement, and that atonement was what? We just read that five minutes ago. Traveled all the holy places for a year. So it's interesting that Jamadagni was preaching forgiveness to his son, of somebody who'd committed a very grievous offense and preaching atonement to his son and yet Renuka is worried that her husband's going to curse her because she didn't bring the water on time and had some momentary uh, attachment for another man so we're going to talk about this more tomorrow but how difficult it is to practice what we preach even for great even great personalities have difficulty practicing what they preach. Right, we talked about this in Manashiksha. This was the thieves' problem, where a person already is preaching very nicely, but their behavior isn't in line with their, with their preaching. So anyway, she was worried, and she just put down the water pot without saying anything. Now, we might note that she didn't say anything. Well, why didn't she say anything? Why didn't she apologize? So if we've done something wrong, the best thing to do is that we should apologize. We should take a humble position. And it's always good to take a humble position before the person gets angry with you, rather than waiting until they get angry with you. And this she didn't do. She took a humble position in terms of physicality, that she puts down the water pot and she just stands there with folded hands, you know, knowing that she's done something wrong. Uh, but she doesn't, you, you don't see her making any attempt to rectify it. You understand? She, she, doesn't, she doesn't admit her fault. She doesn't say to her husband, you know, the reason that I didn't bring the water in time for your sacrifice is, I mean, I can understand why she wouldn't. It would be very embarrassing. 
but uh, she also knew that he had uh, clairvoyance that by his brahminical power he would know exactly what happened and it would have been wise for her to have taken it upon herself uh, to admit her fault because what we tend to do if, if we're very angry with somebody if they admit their fault fully and apologize then the vast majority of us will immediately go into a merciful mode isn't it? Sometimes we won't. I mean, if we're extremely angry, we won't. But most normal people, if a person takes the initiative and says, wow, I, I really messed up, I really made a mistake, or I, I did something terrible, I apologize. And it, it's quite interesting that if someone says, I did something really terrible, I really messed up, I apologize, and whatever punishment you want to give me, I'm okay with that because I, I'm not even asking for your forgiveness then most people will not punish. You understand? Does that make sense to me? Isn't that our experience? So if someone offends us and they, they take, the, they're proactive. I messed up, this is what I did. No excuses, no justification, no but. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but. No... Yes, I was late, but Chicharata was really handsome. What could I do? Nothing like that. Boy, I really messed up. Your sacrifice didn't get the water on time. And plus, even though I'm your wife, I felt attraction to another man. Wow. I mean, if you want to throw me out of your family, I mean, those days people didn't really get divorced. But, you know, if you want to throw me out, if you want to reject me, if you want to kill me, whatever you want to do, I'm your surrendered servant. In, in that kind of circumstance the authority will generally forgive. They're a normal person. And some people are, have some screws loose. But normal people respond to that very, very favorably. But she didn't do that. So, you know, why didn't she do that? Obviously she was afraid. And our, our fear also, also tends to make us if we're afraid to apologize. We're afraid to admit. We think that if we admit what we did wrong, we're going to get in more trouble than if we don't admit what we do wrong. But here she's dealing with someone who already knew what she did. Okay, text five. Now things really get out of hand here. The great sage Jamadagni understood the adultery in the mind of his wife, therefore he was very angry and told his sons, my dear sons, kill this sinful woman. But the sons did not carry out his order. So he really overreacted here. I mean, really, like, super overreacted. We find uh, Gautam Muni, when his wife actually committed adultery with Indra, who had taken the form of Gautam Muni. But Gautam Muni can understand that his wife knew that it was Indra in disguise. Maybe she was fooled for the first few minutes, but she wasn't fooled uh, for the whole situation. Uh, he cursed her to become a stone, but he didn't, he didn't ask that she be killed. And he also gave her the benediction that she wouldn't have to stay a stone, or some versions say that she, he cursed her to stay in some kind of subtle form. And eventually she was released by Lord Ramachandra, and he accepted her back. So, I mean, even that is a little harsh, but there she actually committed adultery, and still he didn't kill her. Here we have this uh, Jamadagni. And Jamadagni not only saying that she should be killed, but that her own children should kill her. So it was, it, was, it was very much improper on his part, on Jamadagni's part, 
And we're going to see that he suffers very much for this. He gets a reaction for this, even though, even though he was meditating on the Lord, even though he was meditating on the Lord, by taking this extreme action against his own wife, who's his dependent. So he ends up suffering for this. Actually, it's nicely explained in the fifth canto that sometimes uh, in this material world, a person due to hunger, thirst, or poverty will be unnecessarily cruel to his family members. And this is one of the, the sufferings of the world. And this happens, you know, not only husband to wife, it happens wife to husband, parents to children, children to parents, right? brothers to sisters. The people become unnecessarily cruel to each other because of their own uh, whatever. So here he, he I mean, the, the punishment that he is asking for to be murdered by your own child was not at all commensurate with what you did wrong. Isn't that a fact? I mean, there's just no relationship between such a severe, extreme punishment and and what her mistake was. So the sons didn't didn't do it. They, they said, no, this is wrong. We're, we're not going to do it. They, they took the high moral ground and they were willing to stand up to their father, who was very powerful, and say, sorry, this is, this is wrong. We're not going to do it. Jamadagni then ordered his youngest son, Parasuram. So he'd ordered all the sons at once, but evidently Parasuram didn't, didn't refuse. It's difficult to understand how Parasuram was in a different category here. To kill his brothers, who had disobeyed his order and his mother, who had mentally committed adultery. So this is often what happens with anger. Right? And, and Jamadagni and, and is angry because he's been insulted. That's what his anger is coming from. His anger is coming from an insult. His wife insults him by being attracted to another man, and she insults him by, because of her attraction to another man, not doing what she's expected to do for his sacrifice. Then his sons insult him by disobedience. And I mentioned this the other day. Why do we become angry when we're insulted? Do we all become angry when we're insulted? Have all of us become angry when we're insulted? Yes? Yes? Not you. You have never become angry when you're insulted? Have you? Yes. And how fast do we become angry when we're insulted? Sometimes that fast. It says in the Bhagavatam, it's like it falls out of the sky on us. Have we each done and said things that we regret in anger? So why do we do this? You know, Rupa Goswami says, Vacha Vega, Manasakota Vega, Jiva Vega, Udupasta Vega. We have to control anger. And Krishna says, Trividam Narakashetam Dwar Nasanamatmanam, Kama Krodas Tataskobas Tasmadeta Twayam Tajet. That anger is one of the gates to hell. So what happens with anger is all kinds of chemicals become released into the body very quickly. And these, these chemicals that are in the body have several effects. One is they narrow our consciousness to the threat. We become completely fixed on the threat. We basically become unaware of anything else in our environment. 
And as Krishna explains nicely at the end of chapter 2, what does he say? After anger, there's bewilderment of memory. He says when memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost. So you forget your memory. You forget what it says in the Shastra. You forget what the people you're angry at have done for you. Do we all do this? Have we all experienced this? That we get suddenly angry and we think somebody's insulted us and in that sudden anger, we forget everything. We forget our relationship with the person. We forget what it says in the shot. We forget everything and we lose our intelligence. So why does this happen? This happens because let's say there's a real threat. Okay? Let, let's say that somebody's actually you know, trying to kill you or trying to kidnap you or trying to rape you or trying to rob you. you know, let's say there's an actual threat. We have to be able to act very, very quickly without thought. The same happens, by the way, in heroic activities. You know, when someone jumps in front of a train to save somebody or pick up a car off, off an injured person. When, when there, whenever there's heroic activities, it's pretty much the same neurological pathway as anger. It may not feel like anger, person may not feel that rage but it's, it's the same thing, it just narrows your vision you, you forget everything and you just act without consideration of risk you know a child falls in front of a train and somebody just jumps off the platform and picks up the child while a train's coming and they, their memory of, and their intelligence of you know, we could both die, goes away. Now, when people use this neurological circuitry for heroism, we say it's a very wonderful thing. And when you ask those people, why did you do this? I don't know, I just did it. It wasn't that they thought, I should be a hero. And the same happens when we're threatened, when when the self-defense mechanism gets triggered by something, we, for, we don't remember consequences. We don't remember. We just, we just act. So that's really useful if you're being, you know, attacked by a lion in the forest or if someone's trying to rob you. I mean, it's a very useful mechanism. Unfortunately, this mechanism gets triggered by insult. Well, why does insult trigger this defense mechanism? Or perceived insult? And I explained this the other day, that a, a lot of the way that we get our resources in a social sense, because humans are social beings, is by our social status. It's our, our status in the society of humans that gives us our resources. Isn't that a fact? People with higher status get more resources, and we may have worked very hard for that status. Insults threaten our sense of status. If my wife doesn't obey me, if my children don't obey me, I won't get what I need. It basically, that's what's triggered. Is everybody clear about that? And so it seems to us as if someone's trying to take our food, or someone's trying to take our water, or someone's trying to take our, our home. And we think we have to, we just go into this self-defense, self-preservation mode. It happens very quickly. So 
Jamadagni, you know, he feels that his wife has insulted him. He asks his sons to kill her when they refuse. Now he's asking Parasaram not only to kill his wife, but to kill his sons. And again, we see that this is what happens in anger. It, it escalates. Isn't it? Doesn't this happen? We think somebody insults us. I mean, I was just trying to mediate a situation between devotees like this. Nobody tried to kill anybody, thankfully. It didn't go to that level. But one devotee wrote something on a conference. And someone else on the conference took it that what he had written was an insult. I know this person, and I feel reasonably confident that he wasn't intending to insult anybody. He was simply making an observation. But somebody took it as an insult. The person who took it as an insult later told me, uh, I was really tired. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. That doesn't help one's uh, clarity of thought. And the person who felt insulted was female. So this female wrote back, you know, I'm offended. I'm personally offended. Now in ISKCON, when you tell somebody, I'm offended, that's one of the biggest insults in the Hare Krishna movement, to categorize somebody as an offender or as being offensive. It's one of the top, isn't it? One of the top ways you can insult somebody in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness is to tell them they're offensive. About the only thing I know higher than that is telling them that they're disloyal to Srila Prabhupada, that they're offensive to Srila Prabhupada. That's, that's the only thing that's higher than, than that. Then you're an offender. So she said to him, she said, I feel personally offended. Which then he took as an insult. Then he insulted her. And he said, why are you saying it's offensive? Is anyone else complaining or is this just you? So then she insults him and she says, I guess you don't know standards of proper behavior. Why don't you ask these people how to behave? So then he insults her back. Then the organizer of the conference, who's a man, he thought, oh, this woman's being insulted by this man. So he jumps in and he went way over the top. He started telling the original man, not only have you offended her, you've offended everybody in ISKCON, and you've offended Srila Prabhupada. I'm like, oh my God. Wow. So this is just, it's such a common thing that insults escalate like this. A insults B, B insults A, A insults B more, and it just, it just gets completely out of hand. And people can also become physically violent. So here, it's also, I find it interesting that Jemadagni himself doesn't become violent. That's also a little cowardly, isn't it? To tell your sons to do it instead of you, you know, instead of you killing your wife, you're asking your sons to kill their mother. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's really out of line here. All right, the rest of this verse. Lord Parasram, knowing the power of his father, who has practiced in meditation and austerity, killed his mother and brothers immediately. Purport. The word Prabhaha Gyan is significant. Parasram knew the prowess of his father, and therefore he agreed to carry out his father's order. 
He thought that if he refused to carry out the order, he would be cursed. But if he carried it out, his father would be pleased. And when his father was pleased, Parasram would ask the benediction of having his mother and brothers brought back to life. Parasram was confident in this regard, and therefore he agreed to kill his mother and brothers. So also, what happens is, when a person gets very angry like this, once they express their anger, then they come back to sanity. Yes? This is true with anger and it's true with lust. It's not true with greed. Greed of the three, lust, anger, and greed. Uh, Greed never reaches a point of satiation. That's the definition of greed. You're never satiated. Uh, Lust, obviously... Uh, we don't need to be gross, but lust has its way of being satiated, and anger has its method of being satiated. So when they're satiated, at least for some time, the lust or anger dissipates, and when it dissipates, you get your intelligence back. Yes? I mean, our example with lust was Lord Shiva running after Mohini Murti, that he lost his intelligence and lust running after Mohini Murti, and, and, and after the lust was dissipated, the way it becomes dissipated, then he got his intelligence back. And he's like, what am I doing? You know, he thought, well, okay, I was defeated by Vishnu, that's all right. <laughs> that was his, his mood. By the way, in the story of Narada Muni with Daksha, when Daksha was cursing Narada for turning all the boys into sannyasis, it said that Narada hung around and, and allowed Daksha to curse him, thinking if Daksha curses me and he gets his anger out, then his intelligence will come back. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Now, we do have people who become, one could, you know, I don't want to use this word loosely, but that who become addicted to rage. You know, anger is one of the russes. There's some enjoyment and some feeling of power and some feeling of control by exhibiting anger. And there are people who get into a cycle of becoming angry like this and releasing that anger and feeling some um, material perverted exaltation from releasing their anger and then their anger gradually builds up again and then they release it again by harming someone. And this is called in modern psychology the cycle of abuse. So if you're with an abusive person, you'll think, oh, they're nice most of the time and every once in a while they lose it. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is their anger is building up, building up, building up, building up, building up, building up. And then they release it in some sudden burst of verbal or physical or combination of both anger. And that's how they get a feeling of of exaltation. I'm powerful. I'm strong. I'm wonderful. And then right after that, their intelligence comes back and they may even apologize. And they may be super nice to the person. Oh, I shouldn't have treated them like that. But if they're addicted to this surge of anger, then it will build up again. And this is the the psychology of an abuser, that they actually, anger becomes like a drug for them. Of course, other people try to enjoy anger. Most normal people who are not abusers uh, try to enjoy anger through other means. Uh, Sporting events and political rallies are two of the main ways in modern society that people try to taste anger. So this is the... So what Parasram is hoping for here is that if he obeys his father, his father will become pacified. Oh, finally somebody's respecting me. And with that pacification, oh, finally somebody's respecting me. 
then that anger will be dissipated and he'll have his intelligence back. And when Parasaram then says, give me a benediction, he knows my father is so powerful over Ramana that he can bring people back to life and he'll bring them back to life. And in, in fact, that is exactly um, uh, what he asks. And I think I'm going to read one more verse. We actually should change it to seven. So I'm going to read verse seven. Sorry about that. In verse seven it says, Jamadagni, the wife of Satchavati, was very much, the son of Satchavati, was very much pleased with Parasaram and asked him to take any benediction he liked. So especially after you've been insulted, you're very pleased with somebody who respects you. Isn't that? Lord Parasaram replied, let my mother and brothers live again and not remember having been killed by me. This is the benediction, I ask. So he didn't want his relationship with them damaged. Okay. So I want to look at, we've looked a lot about anger and, and insult, but I'd also like to look, about, look at the concept of following authority here. Because we have that Jamadagni's sons did not follow his authority, but Parasaram did. And th- this brings up a question which there's no way we're going to answer fully in the next 12 minutes about when should we, should we and should we not follow authority. So Srila Prabhupada in the Bhagavad Gita, verse 434, says blind following is condemned. He said blind following is condemned. And we know in our uh, modern society, if a person commits a crime on the excuse that they were told to by their authorities, that is not considered a legally viable excuse. I'm sure you're all familiar in the Nuremberg trials after World War II, when the Nazis were being tried for war crimes, so the leaders were tried for war crimes and then the second tier were brought up and they said we were following orders we were following orders they said sorry you have the moral responsibility to disobey immoral orders you cannot use being given an order as an excuse to do something immoral now it's, it's interesting that when Srila Prabhupada talks about the smoke covering fire that every occupation every ashram in this world has some fault he says the fault of being a shudra is that you may have to follow the orders of a bad master you may have to follow bad orders and this is true in general if you're a child you may have to do what your parents say even if you're convinced it's wrong if you're a wife you may have to do what your husband says even if you're convinced it's wrong you know, if, you, if you're an employee, you may have to do what your employer says, even if you're convinced it's wrong. If you're a citizen, you may have to do what your government says, even if you're convinced it's wrong. This is life. And if every time our, we, our authority told us to do something that we were convinced was wrong, we didn't follow them, there wouldn't be much meaning to authority. It, would, it wouldn't mean anything. You know, if, if every time we disagreed, we just did what we thought, then we wouldn't really have an authority. But there, there's definitely a line where if, you're, if the person who's in charge of you tells you to do something, it's your duty to refuse. Even if it means your death. Even if it means your death, even if it means you're tortured, there, there's a line over which you have to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Whatever the consequences may be for me personally. So who's our examples in the Shastra of people who refuse their authority's order besides the sons of Parashat, of Jamadagni? 
Balimars was Sukracharya. Some other example. Huh? Prahlad with Hiranyakashipu. He got some heavy consequences for that disobedience. That wasn't without consequence. Who else? Sanakumaras with Lord Brahma, yes. Who else? The sons of Daksha, okay, good. Who else? Vibhishan with Ravana, excellent. There were also consequences for that. That was not without consequence. Devaki and Vasudev, who didn't turn over their eighth son to Kamsa, yes. Excellent. He was not only her brother, he was the king. all the gopis who left you know their husbands their fathers their brothers whatever don't go and they went bar it with uh, um, kaikei another example I'm sure we could think of many other examples so there's there's many many examples in the scripture although the scripture is telling us you know your mother is like God your father is like God the wife should see the husband like God the scriptures are telling us these things and then they're also giving us examples of people who said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Sita with Ram, when he said, don't go to the forest, and she said, I'm going. So we have so many examples. She said, that's wrong. You're giving me a wrong instruction. I'm not going to follow it. I'm not going to stay here without you. So I want to look at blind following, blind rebellion, and intelligent following. So blind following is I'm just supposed to do whatever I'm told without question and without thought. And, and many times, many, many times, we misunderstand surrender to Krishna to be like that. Oh, when did somebody rebel against Krishna? And Krishna was pleased. Yes. Well, I'm thinking about the gopis too, but I was thinking when Krishna told the gopis, go home. Huh? Arjuna? Where did he rebel against Krishna that Krishna was pleased? thinking particularly of the gopis when Krishna says go home. It's almost an identical verse that Krishna says to the wives of the brahmanas. Almost word for word the same. And the wives of the brahmanas do go home, but the gopis don't. They refuse. They say, we're not going anywhere. We're, we're staying right here. So blind following is that under all circumstances, no matter what, I, I become like a robot. I become like a machine. 
and I just do whatever I'm told without, without question. Prabhupada also gives an example of blind following that you accept an authority just because other people have accepted that authority. He says a guru has 10,000 followers so you think, oh, it must be a bona fide guru. You know, in other words, you don't examine you don't examine an authority before accepting them or you don't examine the instructions of that authority before accepting those instructions. And uh, the evidence of blind following is that you're not going to be happy and you're going to be implicated in something sinful. You're not going to get the, the proper result. And we, we see this, it, 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 you see this blind following sometimes in a Hare Krishna movement. Ah, what's that? Ah. No, don't do that. And Krishna was pleased with that. Don't forget your promise. And yes, and then Krishna was. And he was. And Krishna was pleased that Arjuna was that Arjuna argued with him. And then Bhishma knows that Krishna is God Himself. So Bhishma tells to Krishna, "Look, I have made God Himself to get upset with me and angry with me. Did you get up angry with me, Krishna?" And Bhishma will ask him. So Bhishma will know as a devotee of Krishna. Yes, because he's in this chivalrous mood with Krishna, yes. Supreme Lord himself, I made him step out of the chariot even for a second. I was, it is possible for me to do that. Oh, very nice, very sweet. Very sweet. Actually, we say Krishna does not enjoy anything material. Matter means that there's no volition. You know, if I, if I take this and I throw it in the air, it doesn't complain. Yeah, if I use this to hurt you, it doesn't say, hey, why are you engaging me in something immoral? It, matter has no, it has no volition, it has no ethics, it has no morality, it has, it has no consciousness. And that Krishna doesn't enjoy that. Krishna doesn't enjoy trying to enjoy something that just does whatever he tells it to do all the time uh, without thought and reciprocation. It's not what he enjoys. He enjoys relationships with living beings. Well, living beings, Prabhupada, Prabhupada wrote in a letter, a devotee said, Prabhupada, there's differences of opinion because of impersonalism. Prabhupada said, no, there's differences of opinion because of personalism. What does it mean that we're different people? What, what does that mean? It means we have differences of opinion. You know, I'll like mangoes and you won't. So what is blind rebellion? Blind rebellion is when we rebel just to be rebellious. Or we rebel without considering 
the the nuances of what our authority is saying. Or as soon as our authority says something we disagree with, we immediately rebel. I I remember um, years ago in ISKCON, we would secretly pass around this book, this Christian book about how to be a good wife. We did it secretly because we were only supposed to read Prabhupada's books. And one of the points the author made there, which I thought was, was wonderful, she said that when women are told that they should follow their husband, they're very hesitant to do so. Why should I follow him? She said, but you're not really following your husband. You're following God who told you to follow your husband. And she said, then the women will say, well, suppose he makes a mistake. And she says, she said, the sin of disobedience is much worse than mistakes. Mistakes are not sinful, but disobedience is sinful. So generally, we shouldn't be disobedient to our authority. To be rebellious just for the sake of being rebellious, the, uh, the result of that is chaos in society, which is exactly what's happening. That in modern society, people are just rejecting their authorities, left and right and center. And things just, they, they can't go on. And there's no respect in society. So if we think of that our authority is making a mistake, but it's not a spiritual, moral, or ethical wrong, then we should follow. Why should my opinion prevail over the, over the opinion of my authorities? How am I so sure that I'm right? You know, if I'm in charge, will I always make the, the right decisions? I mean, it's, it's just envy and egoism, actually. I want to be the one in charge. I want to be the one making the decisions. Somebody has to make ultimate decisions. Everything can't be negotiated. It's not that, every, it's not that we're going to agree about everything. That, that's just not going to happen. If you're with a group of people, you're not going to get unanimous consensus about everything. And sometimes the leader just has to take a decision that somebody may disagree with, isn't it? Yes? You can't, can't manage anything otherwise. It's just not possible. You can try to get unanimous consensus on everything, but you know sometimes it doesn't work. And the people under the authority have to be willing in those circumstances unless there's a spiritual, moral, or ethical harm to just say, okay, I, will, I voluntarily will allow myself to be guided by you, although I disagree with you. So we don't want blind rebellion either. Just like we don't want blind obedience, we don't want blind rebellion. So what is intelligent following? So intelligent following is we, can, we have the discretion to know what we were talking about this I think yesterday. What's a detail and what's a principle? If I disagree with my authority about a detail and I'm not able to convince my authority about a detail, then I submit. And I don't submit to the authority because I trust the authority. I submit to the authority because I trust God. And God wants there to be some order in human society. He doesn't want there to be chaos and anarchy. And I trust Krishna that if I follow my authority when I disagree, that Krishna will adjust everything. He'll be pleased with me and he'll adjust everything. Now this is exactly what Parasaram did, although he did this in a situation where generally one should have refused. He thought, if I do this, Krishna, of course he's Krishna himself, so that's another 
level that we're not going to get into today at all. But if I do this, Krishna will be pleased, and if I do this, my father will be pleased, and then everything will be adjusted. But generally, an order like this that is spiritually, ethically, morally, morally, karmically wrong, we have to be able to distinguish. And the trick with being able to distinguish is that we often justify our own desires with spiritual, moral, and ethical arguments. Oh, it's not about what I want. It's about what Prabhupada wants. No, 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 it's not about me. It's not about my desires. It's, it's really about higher principles. We are very rarely honest with ourselves or with others that this is my opinion just because it's my opinion. And this is what I want just because I want it. We don't like to say that. We feel that that's childish. And so we'll say, well, it's not my opinion. It's from the Shastra. It's from Prabhupada. It's from God. So in order to see things clearly, we have to have a, middle, a, a little bit at least of practical humility. Practical humility is, why do I have this opinion? Even if I can back it up from Shastra, even if I can back it up from Guru, why am I taking this stand? And why am I taking this stand so strongly? How much of my ego is invested in this? Years ago, I approached Burijan Prabhu with a complaint about something in the Vishnavalaram temple, and he said to me, this is not your service. And I said, but I, I can't give it up. And he said, well, you know, there's much too much of your own ego invested in this issue. And he was right. So to be able to, to see that, you know, how much of my own ego, how much of my own fears, how much of my own wanting to have things for my own pleasure are wrapped up in my disagreement with my authority. So how are we going to get that discretion? The only way we're going to get that discretion is to be at a higher level of consciousness. It's the only way. I mean, we, have, we should definitely study the scriptures. We should, I mean, the, that's why we're studying the Bhagavatam. We're studying the Bhagavatam ultimately so we can become attracted to Krishna. And we're also studying the Bhagavatam so we can get practical ideas about how to function. So we should definitely study the scriptures. If we don't read the scriptures and we don't study the scriptures, we will not have any discretion. We won't have any basis for any discussion. But studying the scriptures is not enough because the Christians have a saying which Prabhupada would also quote, the devil cites scripture. You can find something in the scripture to justify anything if you want to. So it's not just studying the scriptures, but one has to have clarity of consciousness. Clarity of consciousness means at least satvagun. Which also means that one has to be able to recognize and deal with anger appropriately. One has to be able to see ooh, attachment, fear, and anger. There it is. It's not me. There's anger in my body and mind. There's fear in my body and mind. There's anger in my body and mind. But it's not me. And I am not going to allow myself to be controlled by it. I'm not going to repress it. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to hate it. I'm not going to be attached to it or averse to it. I'm simply going to take the position which I have of observer. 
if I maintain the position of observer and stay in Sattvagun or in Bhakti as the observer, then I can keep my discretion even when there's cause for attachment, fear, and anger. And in that platform of clear consciousness, then I can apply the scripture rightly and understand, is this a situation where I should disobey or is this a situation where I should cooperate, even if I disagree? Obviously, we don't have to talk about cooperating when we agree. That's obvious. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions? The what was done in Trechu and Sachi? The Homo and Yignas. The Homo, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were performed mostly in the two Yuga Sachi and the Trechu. Uh-huh. So, the, in the Simad Bhagavatam, Prabhupada has written that the, in Kaliya, Arnam Sachi, takes up the same, Kalisra Pazma, the Buddha's teaching. Yes. So, Arnam Sachi is the only way. Yes. So, I'm just curious, it's just a curious question. Did Prabhupada Oh, of course. Well, he did uh, homo for initiations and weddings, oh. for deity installations, for temple installations. Yes, please. Yes, please. It was a totally valid complaint. So my question is, like I'm in a position of authority, what will happen if every time people come to me with valid complaints and I tell them they're too much in the ego? You'll probably make a lot of enemies. Well, in this case, I went to Burjan about something that wasn't Burjan's area either. I, I was coming to him with a problem about other people in a position of authority that were doing the wrong thing. So if I had come to him about something I felt he was doing wrong and he had said to me, this is just your ego, uh, that wouldn't have gone very well. But we all leave on the platform of ego, isn't it? Like pointing to someone and someone works on the platform. Well, okay. There, on that platform, you could say everything we do until we're at the platform of prema has some degree of our false ego in it. That's correct. So it, it's really a question of degree. And his observation, I'm glad to bring this up, his observation was really that my ego was so deeply and so intricately intertwined with this issue that I was losing my clarity. Now, can you, can you as the authority say that to your subordinate who comes to you with a complaint about you? Well, no, you can't. Because in that context, the subordinate will take it that you are disrespecting them by pushing aside their point through an ad hominem attack. I understand. I, I know what will happen. But it's just a question because I, yeah, I often wonder if you're not allowed to challenge our authorities. Where is that accountability? Well, we didn't say that. That you weren't allowed to challenge your authorities. Uh, I think you mentioned before that if, if, if authority makes no mistakes, you should just accept it. And well, I talked about a line. What's the line? 
What, what's the line? No, there, there's a line. That something that's over that line, you have a duty to go into rebellion. What's the line? Definitely not. That is so fuzzy. Oh, sure. I mean, we only had a 45-minute class. So, you know, this is a topic we could talk about for a month or two. Literally. I mean, really. We could. But what's the line? Okay, but what are you... What are you having discretion about you're trying to have discretion is it below the line or above the line well, what's the line what makes kill your mother above the line it's what morality okay the line you have a line of morality what else is at the line Well, okay. Let, let's as a follower, as a follower, looking at this from the position of a follower, not from the position of an authority. And everybody has an authority, except for God. So everybody's a follower of somebody. So the line is spiritual, moral, ethical, and in some cases legal. So if your authority asks you to do something that violates something spiritual, moral, ethical, or legal, then you have a, a duty to question and ultimately to disobey. If your authority asks you to do something that's not spiritually, morally, ethically, or legally wrong, then you have a different opinion. If your authority says, I want you to decorate the temple with blue flowers at 2 o'clock, and you say, I want to decorate the temple with red flowers at 1 o'clock, you can try to negotiate it, but ultimately, if, if, you don't, if you don't cooperate, then society falls apart. If your authority says, you know, I, I, I want you to go on book distribution today, and you say, well, you know, I wanted to read Bhagavatam today. Well, we, you know, as I said, we can't... It's now 8.58. You know, if, if you want to get into the nuances of this, it's, it's, a, it's a very nuanced and difficult topic. And the ultimate answer is, as a follower, we have to have consciousness that's so much seeped in the mode of goodness or in transcendence that we can tell the difference. Again, this class was not... At first I talked from the point of view of the authority and I talked about what? The first half of the class. I talked from Jagamadagni's point of view and I talked about... Huh? First I took Jagamadagni's point of view. And what do we talk about the first half of the class? Insult and anger. How should we as an authority behave when we feel insulted, especially by our subordinates, that they're not following us, that they're in rebellion against us. So first I took that position, Gemma Dagny's position. My wife insulted me, my sons insulted me, I want to kill them. 
how should how should anybody respond when they feel that someone has has insulted them, especially a subordinate? Authorities react wrongly to rebellion when they take it as a personal insult. Clouds their intelligence, triggers anger, which triggers loss of memory, loss of intelligence. Then we took the position of Parasaram and the brothers and his brothers. What do we do when our authority is, as we say colloquially, off the wall? What do you do? Do you do blind following, blind rebellion, or intelligent following? So we talked about blind following, we talked about blind rebellion, and we talked about intelligent following. So we talked about those as two separate things. From the point of view of an authority who has to make good decisions in a difficult situation, how should they respond to feeling insulted? Particularly. Because that was Gemma Dugna's problem. And to the follower, how do you respond when you're perceiving that your authority is, is behaving in a in a demoniac, immoral, unethical, or illegal way. And how do you have the line? And it's hard to have a line because, as I brought up, we tend to rationalize and cover our opinions with spiritual, moral, and ethical, and legal is clearer, arguments. So I actually have an argument based on ego whether I'm the authority or whether I'm the follower, actually my position is ego. Responding to rebellion as an insult is pure ego. Although it arises from a defense mechanism that's for our benefit in the body. But it's pure ego. And going into either blind following or blind rebellion is also pure ego. So... I, I'm, I'm likely to go into blind following or blind rebellion because I'm covering the situation with some sort of spiritual, moral, or ethical decorations to make it look like something that it's not. Just like the authority is, is may cover his anger and inappropriate punishment with some sort of spiritual, moral, and ethical decorations also. So how do we avoid this? And it, it's heavy because we're looking at someone like Jamadagni. We're not looking at some, you know, Mr. Trump. We're, we're looking at Jamadagni here, who, who's, who could meditate on the Lord and who had Parasurama as his son. And the Bhagavatam gives us examples of these great personalities who mess up. So that we understand, you know, I've got to be really, really careful. I, I should have a, a humility check always which is this ego step back don't just react don't just react with with anger and violence don't just react with blind following or blind rebellion after krishna gives the fall down sequence says, you move back. Don't be attached or averse. Oh, I have a body. My body is going to respond with anger, with indignation. It's just, a, it's just chemicals in the body. It's not me. And frankly, our japa, our gayatri, our archana, our shastra, it's got to bring us to that platform. That's the only ultimate solution. Because when we start wrangling about 
is this actually moral or is this actually ethical? As I say legally, it's usually a little bit more clear cut. You know, is this actually spiritual? Because we, we cover our egotistical motives with this veil of, oh, I'm not acting by my ego. This is the Manashiksha donkey yearn problem, right? Those of you who are in our Manashiksha class, this is the donkey yearn bath of Manashiksha. It's inner deceit, inner hypocrisy, where I cover my actual motives with a veil of spirituality or a veil of morality. And the only solution for that, Raghunath Das Goswami says, is a bath with our mind in the lotus feet of the Lord. It's, it's absorption in the spiritual. There's no other solution. If we stay on the platform of the mind and we stay on the platform of ego and we, we try to wrangle it out on that platform, it's very hard to reach a solution. I mean, you can. Like, I'm trained in mediation and, and you can do that. You can try to find, you know, where's the points of agreement and, and that sort of thing and, and you, can, you can work on that on the mundane platform within the modes of nature to settle most things most of the time but ultimately for these decisions it comes to being on a transcendent platform or at least being in Satvagun and there's when, when, you, when you're there according to Bhagavad Gita when you're there in Satvagun or in transcendence you have clarity you have clarity. And in clarity, you can distinguish what's my ego and what's the issue and what's real. What's real and what's false. You see what's binding, what's liberating. And then whether you're the authority or whether they're the subordinate, then you can decide, has this crossed the line of being demoniac and amoral and unethical? Or is it simply a difference of opinion because we're different people? And if it's a difference of opinion and I can't convince my authority, then as a follower, I should follow. End of story. If we're not talking about a moral, spiritual, ethical, legal harm, then I, do, I should not go into rebellion just for the sake of my ego. I should follow. Even if I'm right, and even if time proves that I'm right, it doesn't matter. Because the principle of following authority is in and of itself a moral, ethical, and spiritual principle. So if it's just a difference of opinion and I violate spiritual, moral, and ethical principles to assert my opinion, then I'm much more wrong than my authority who had made a mistake on a technical basis. I can just give you a simple practical example. So I was in a Honolulu temple on Pandavanir Jalakadasi and my uh, son-in-law's father, Shruti Kirtipabu, was temporarily the temple president. And he said, aren't you coming for breakfast? I said, no, I'm, I'm going to do a Nirjal. And he said, he was Prabhupada's personal servant for a couple of years, and he said, uh, you know, Prabhupada never did Nir Jalakadasis. Why, what are you doing this for? He said, the real austerity is book distribution. You should go out and do books. And I said, Prabhu, I never was really very good at distributing books. He says, no, you should do books. So I you know, argued with him for a couple of minutes. And I said, okay, you know, you're the, you're the town president right now. You know, okay. I'll do it. So uh, 
I ate breakfast, and our granddaughter in common, he's the father of my daughter's husband, so our granddaughter in common came out with me. She and I went to the main stretch of road for two hours. We went out in saris and tilak, and we did our level best to distribute Shiva Prabhupada's books for two hours, after which point we had distributed zero books. And he came to pick us up. How many books did you do? I said, zero. And he said, that wasn't even worth the cost of the gas to drive you here and pick you up. I said, well, I told you I'm not very good at book distribution. He said, yeah, next time just do a near Jalakadis. So he wasn't asking me to do anything spiritually, morally, or ethically, or legally wrong. I had a different opinion. And I was right. He was wrong. But I followed him anyway. So yeah, we have a difference of opinion. As long as the other person is, is within Guru Sadhu Shastra, we follow. We can, we can say, I don't agree. I have a different opinion. But we have to, we have to obey. That, that's it. We just have to obey. And to be able to, to know what is that line requires higher consciousness. And there's no substitute for higher consciousness. There, there's no mediation technique. There's no psychological technique. There's, no, there's nothing that substitutes for that higher consciousness. Nothing. It's the, it's the only way to discern, is my authority crossing that line? Which then obligates me to rebel, even if the cost to me is torture and death. Haridas Thakur was beaten in 23 marketplace. Even if the... And, and it's, it's got to be that line. That's another way to tell. Am I willing to be tortured and killed for my rebellion? If I'm not, it probably isn't above that line. Or else I'm a coward. That could be. I could just be a coward. But if, if I'm not willing to face torture and death for my rebellion and probably it's a difference of opinion and probably it's just my ego involved and I should probably just follow if I can't convince I can, I can try to convince my authority otherwise but the Shastric examples of people who did intelligent rebellion these other sons of Jamadagni they were killed yes they were killed for their rebellion and, and they knew how, how powerful their father was they were willing to face death so it, 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 disobedience is really that serious of a, of a line it's not a difference of opinion it's not a different perspective it's not like that, that, that that's not justification for rebellion that's justification for discussion and mediation and you know trying to work it out on that platform but not for rebellion rebellion better be it's really serious it's a really serious thing to go into rebellion but we are obligated morally ethically just like we are obligated spiritually morally and ethically to obey our authorities when there's a difference of opinion we are also obligated spiritually morally and ethically to rebel if our authorities have crossed that line both of those are, are a spiritual, moral, and ethical obligation of, of us. No matter what it costs us. Yes? What about if um, you perceive that 
Yes. Inform people. Definitely. Then you inform the person who has the place to do it. You know, that's kind of what transpired between Burge and me. He said, this is not your service. I said, but this is a serious wrong. And he said, you have too much of your own ego involved with it. I said, you know, you're right, I do. But it's still a serious wrong. And then he said, well, did you inform all the proper persons? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, then you have to talk to Balaram. And I said, why Balaram? He said, well, it's Krishna Balaram's temple. And I said, why Balaram? He said, he's the older brother. So I went to talk to Balaram, and I said, there's a serious wrong here. And within a year then, it was fixed. So yes, definitely. We have have an obligation if we know that somebody has has regularly transgressed spiritual, moral, and ethical, or or legal. And then most likely they're going to do it again. We definitely have an obligation. That doesn't mean people are going to listen to us, but we have the obligation to say something. I recently did that, in fact. And nobody listened to me. But I did it. And I did it repeatedly with, with anybody who, you know, I said, look, this person has done the X, Y, Z, and I don't think that this person should be put in this position having done that, and if you want confirmation, you can talk to these people and these people and this people. You know, and, and they didn't listen to me, and they posted the person again in the position, but you know, that's not, I'm not responsible for that. But yes, I was definitely responsible to say so. Is that right? This is a heavy, deep, difficult topic. These are very heavy verses. Yes? These were not, you know, Krishna's playing ball in the forest verses. This is this, this section of the Bhagavatam, this particular pastime. Actually, the ninth canto is full of things like this. The ninth canto is full of these stories that you just go, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is it's, it's heavy. There's very heavy situations to call them, particularly in the North Canto. Okay. Thank you. I hope I haven't offended anybody. And uh, again, I think this is the kind of thing that we could discuss where it's it's not the sort of thing you can really cover in an hour. Shiva Prabhupada Ki.